Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My guest tonight is Mr. Zane Clays. Zane, welcome to HXP. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So Zane, um, I mean, your book is called The Joy of Craft. Can you just walk us through a little bit of your background, how you got to writing this book? Sure. I studied video game design and a little bit of neuroscience in college because I was very interested in attempting to essentially bring entertainment and education together and really create products that and that made, uh, you know, just an, an enjoyable experience for people. But I found that the more and more I worked on these things, the more I enjoyed the process rather than the outcome. I wasn't so concerned with how many people downloaded or played my games or used my software, but I just really enjoyed actually building them. And even one person was enough to make it worthwhile for me. And I was really fascinated by that concept. Like why was that process so interesting and so valuable for me? And I started diving into the psychology and neuroscience of how that works and what the, what the science has to tell us about how we um, engage in the, the art of creativity, the craftsmanship behind building things and found that ultimately a focus on outcome is somewhat detrimental to the process itself and paradoxically can actually hurt the results. Yeah, that seems like a really wise standpoint to kind of approach your your career and what you're doing. So, I mean, video games are often viewed as kind of time wasters by mainstream media. But you you developed a game called or you created a game called Forever Maze, which is designed to help people battle depression. Um, how I mean, can you tell us about Forever Maze and how you feel it, it counteracts depression? Sure. It's just one of many different little experiments I do with video game design for social good. I've mostly focused on games around learning, but this was a little bit into a different realm. As you said, it's about battling depression. I somewhat got the idea from Jane McGonigal's work, who has written books like Reality is Broken. And she's talked about this sort of using video games for unexpected and unusual uh, ways of improving the ex human experience. So there's lots of different examples that we studied in my university at USC of, for example, the US government using games to help soldiers um, it, that are going to or coming back from the battlefield, such as with PTSD and things of that nature. Right. But there's there's many different ways that you can apply video games to uh, elicit response, responses in people that kind of go deeper than um, any sort of explicit training program. So Forever Maze, while not, I wasn't trying to create any sort of clinical treatment for, for depression, but rather kind of create an allegory for what it feels like to de be depressed, having you know, met friends and met people who have gone through that experience. 
in the game, you are in this endless world where each of the four tiles in the world are an emotion. They are, um, they, they form a maze. And as you explore, you have to keep these four emotions in balance and you're being chased by depression at the same time, the antagonist <laughs> and your objection or object, objective, I should say, is to reach one of your friends. So your friends who play the game are actually scattered around the map. And when you reach one of them, you progress to the next level. So the whole thing's just essentially a no, the notion of building a bridge bridge to your friends through the emotions that you have and, and keeping them uh, in check and keeping an eye on them. Because we know that when you uh, have a mind for your emotional state, uh, mindfulness, as we would say, right. that you are able to essentially um, keep, them, uh, keep them balanced. You're able to maintain healthier emotional state. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, there's so there's an aspect of Forever Maze where you kind of show the benefit of social community in this way by finding your friends. How how did you use this game to rely on community? Well, I, I'm very fascinated by the notion of communities in games in general. I, I started myself playing online games like MMORPGs, the predecessors to World of Warcraft in my youth, and I found them to, they really changed the direction of my life in a very positive way. I found there to be a community waiting for me in this online world that broke me out of my shell as a rather introverted young child and ultimately helped me develop into a much more, you know, socially aware, socially adept person as an adult. And Forever Maze is, as I said, a small experiment into this. It's not the the large, rich world that you would see in an MMORPG, but it's trying to tap into that same idea of using games and using the, the online space to uh, make you realize that there are other people out there and get you out of the room, if only in a sort of projected way. Hmm. Intriguing. One of the elements that seems to cross over from your games to your book, Joy of Craft, is the need for people to enjoy what they are spending their time doing rather than being solely focused on achievement and I guess enjoying the journey and the process. And in your book, you talk about hedonic treadmill. Yeah. How, I mean, how does that affect the way you see modern society and I mean, do, can you define hedonic treadmill for us, please? Sure. Yeah. The hedonic treadmill is, you might think of it as keeping up with the Joneses. It's this psychological experience that a lot of us have of wanting something more than what we get. Whenever you get something, you want the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. There's never an end to it. You get that fast car and you want a faster car. You get whatever you get never actually satisfies you. And what's fascinating to me, too, is that there's an interesting parallel here with video games where some of the worser games, I would say, have what players call a level treadmill, a grind, where you just do the same thing over and over and over. And sure, you level up, you get further, but ultimately those games are unsatisfying. And that's what the crossover taught me from video games to real life is that you might get completely wrapped up in this process at the moment. It might feel good to get the next level, to get the next car, to get the next paycheck. But ultimately, 
you're just going to look for the next one and the next one. And if you if you keep thinking that the next one is going to solve your problems, if you believe that there's some answer that exists beyond the horizon, and if you don't stop to actually enjoy where you're at, then you're never actually going to be satisfied. Yeah, I find that so important. I mean, even for myself, like my my own ego is always like, you know, what the next guest, the next guest, what's the next thing for me? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I appreciate that you cover that in your book. Um, you're, the first part of your book talks about motivation and why science kind of says we do what we do. I mean, what what have you found are the processes in the brain that are going on when someone is enjoying activity versus not? There's a lot of talk of implicit or internal versus external motivation. This notion that, you know, you're either motivated by something that you find implicitly enjoyable or motivated by some extrinsic factor like money or rewards. Now, it's pretty easy to create a, you know, a line and say like, oh, internal motivation is good and external motivation is bad. Like that's our initial reaction. But once you start diving deeper into it, you start realizing that it's not quite that clear cut. So the study that I actually opened the book with is one of my favorites about the, um, the process of drawing. What the study does is to start by having children just draw and essentially see you know, how long they do it and how much they enjoy it. And right. then in the other groups of the study, they actually start introducing rewards. So you might give chocolate to that child for drawing. Again, this doesn't seem to change much. Like chocolate, great. Kids love chocolate. They're going to keep drawing and they're going to keep enjoying it. So now we've got the implicit reward or the intrinsic reward of enjoying the drawing and the extrinsic reward of the chocolate. But here's where it get, gets interesting. If you tell the person how much extrinsic reward you're going to give them beforehand, then they actually end up drawing for shorter periods of time and producing worse work as judged by, you know, external judges. So, you know, it's the same people, it's the same enjoyable process. And yet, once you start conflating those two, once you start mixing the internal and external, then you end up in this weird state where it seems to detract from the overall process. And that, that really stuck with me when I read that study. That was kind of the, the genesis of the book right there was, you know, if how can you enjoy something if the very act of being monetarily or extrinsically rewarded from it starts to uh, detract from your intrinsic enjoyment? Right. So that's what I tried to uh, get at the heart of in the book. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing that you are kind of touching on this. This is, I mean, this is the first book that you've written, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that you, I mean, who would you say are your influences? I mean, how, how did you, how did you get to writing a book like this? Oh, wow. I've always wanted to, to write a book. It's been, I've written many, um, you asked if it was the first book I've written. It's the first book that I've published, <laughs> felt, felt qualified to show the world. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, every, every author has got a few of them, at least a few sitting in a shelf somewhere that hopefully will never see the light of day. Right. But that, that said, you know, I, I certainly appreciated the style of Malcolm Gladwell, for example, simply because he was able to bring science to the masses. And I really appreciate that because 
I, I love science. I love the fact that it can tell us so much about the world, but frequently it's daunting to people. And all of these studies are, you know, not, not something people are going to dive into. So I wanted to kind of mimic the, uh, that, that style that he had and that some of the other writers in that genre had, as well as folks like, um, Daniel Kahneman, Dan Aureli, the behavioral economic, um, economics folks, mm-hmm. they all just kind of delve into the, these stranger aspects of psychology and show you how they might be used to improve the quality of life. So the book has something like 200 citations in it from a wide variety of different sources. But I tried to keep it um, very readable, very uh, keep the flow moving and not not linger on any particular you know, science except just to say, yeah, there's data to support this. Right. And I mean, you really, you really talk about money in this book and how happiness is not the possession of money. Let's, let's get into that. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what would you do if you had a million dollars? <laughs> right. The, uh, the office space question, or that's how I think of it. If you've seen the movie office space, um, or any, any guidance counselor really asks that in, in high school, you know, for me, I realized that the answer to that question is that I would just keep building things. I might, you know, I might approach it slightly differently. I might live somewhat, somewhere slightly more exotic than I do, but I would very much just keep building the things I'm interested in building, namely video games and software that are meant to impact social good and keep writing as well. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, why do you why do you think it's so important that we separate this sort of end result, which is money, which is what everyone seems to focus on versus what a person is doing and how the quality of what they're doing? There's one study that I find pretty interesting that some readers may or some listeners may have heard of. It's about lotteries. And one of the key findings of this study, just to summarize very briefly, is that about a year after winning a lottery, most people's happiness returns to a baseline level, about the same point that they were at before winning the lottery. So what that seems to say to me is that money is something of a, a multiplier. It might, you know, it, it might make you go someplace faster. It might give you the resources to get there, but it's nothing more than a resource. It doesn't change your internal emotional state. So if you think of money as something that is actually going to impact or have any sort of change on your internal state, then you're really ascribing values to it that it doesn't have. You have to, you have to change that yourself. Mm-hmm. And money, you know, I'm not saying that money is an evil thing. In fact, there's that, you know, the quotation about money being the root of all evil. Well, that's actually a partial quotation. It's the pursuit of money to the exclusion of all else is the root of all evil. Hmm. So it's not the fact that money is something that is by itself intrinsically bad. It's simply the fact that it's a tool. It's something that we can use to get somewhere. And as long as you respect it for that value that it does have, but don't give it powers or, you know, inflate it with something that it can't do, then it's still useful. I mean, how important do you think time management is to all of this? And it seems like discipline is a really huge thing for you. So do you have any time management tricks that you could share with us? (laughs) Yeah, um, I I certainly 
I, I would certainly agree with that statement that I'm uh, very much a disciplined or regimented person. I think my friends would, would say as much as well. But actually, my, the first thing I would say is don't get too stressed about it. Um, that's actually something that I struggle with is kind of fighting the opposite end of the spectrum, like being so obsessed with um, doing things and uh, accomplishing things that I have to remind myself to slow down and you know stop and smell the roses sometimes. But you, you know, you ask for tips and tricks. So I think that simply um, having a routine is a really good start. Um, knowing the things that make you happy, not the things that you know p- other people tell you make you happy, but the things that you actually genuinely enjoy. I think of things like um, you know going out to the bar, getting drunk, stuff like that. And if if for some people those may be enjoyable, but I think for a lot of us. Um, a drink with friends is pleasant. Seven drinks and waking up hungover is really not a very pleasant experience. <laughs> and so if you can if you can keep your eye on the big picture there and, and think about you know what is it that ultimately I want, then it, it becomes much easier to you know um, to, to keep yourself focused on the things that really do make you happy. And I think it you have to acknowledge first that, a lot of the times what other people, I'm not saying people explicitly tell you this will make you happy, but society kind of implies it to us that, oh, you're supposed to be out drinking. You're supposed to be, you know, doing these things that it's okay to say that that's not what you want. It's okay to uh, pursue something different in your life. And, you know, I would, I would certainly tack on other things like meditation and exercise. There's so much science to back up all of these different practices and support the notion that they can actually um, just improve your overall quality of life. I mean, the the adrenaline and endorphins from exercise can actually end up giving you more energy throughout the day, kind of paradoxically, despite the fact that it seems like you know exercise would wear you out. Or yeah. meditation is is I like to think of it like a weight training for your brain. It's a mental um, bicep curl to help improve your focus and improve perhaps other things too, like empathy or happiness. So all of these things can just contribute to an overall more enjoyable life. Yeah, man. And and that kind of leads into my next question. I was going to ask, you know, there's a part in your book, which is an intrinsic part, I thought, in your book, which was how the reader can kind of adjust course and direct themselves to a more, more joyful life. You explain this by a way of a number of character archetypes and various virtues and vices that a person might have or the characters might have. What are some of these archetypes and what is the sort of core message that you're trying to get across in this section of the book? Sure. Yeah. The, the first half of the book is much more analytical and much more scientific. But as you pointed out, the second half is each chapter is an archetype of some, um, some persona. So, what I was trying to do there was understand the the different approaches that different people take towards life or the different directions that the world can lead us and kind of put myself in the shoes of that sort of person. So one that jumps to mind is the rock star. It's one of the archetypes in the book. And I, once I thought about it, like, would I really have wanted to be a child star, like a, you know, a child actor or a, um, someone who had that sort of early success very early on. Mm-hmm. And 
the more I thought about it, the more the answer was no, because it creates this kind of distorted sense of the world when your very first attempt at anything was a wild success. <laughs> like, how, how do you know that anything you do after that is good? Yeah. It, it, like, every, everybody could be a sycophant. You have no idea. Yeah. So, like, I, I had to sit down and ask myself, honestly, would I want that? No. So that that's kind of what I do, go through each of these character types. I mean, I also look at stuff like the scientist, that's one, or the engineer is one that I personally relate with a lot, being a computer programmer myself. And, you know, there's, there's a certain virtue and a certain vice to each of these. The engineer is very analytical, but sometimes exceedingly so, sometimes too the exclusion of some of the kind of more human and beautiful sides of the world. You you talk about the pursuit of novel experiences at the heart of living an enjoyable life. And you talk a lot about sort of novelty. And I mean, it, you do this on your blog. I mean, why, why do you think that this type of learning is so important? Why is it so significant to sort of learn in this way on a, on a neuroscientific level? Sure. Yeah. So what neuroscience has to tell us about learning is that there's, when you practice the introduction of novel stimuli is extraordinarily important. Now, the reason for this is that let's imagine that your different memories are like, say, different cities, and you are a uh, planner of highways. Now, one approach to connect the different cities would be to build one highway from city A to B to city B, then another highway from city B to city C, and you know one connection between each like that. And that would work. People would be able to get between every city. However, you're, you would be constrained by each of those roads. And you'd have to keep, you could keep building bigger and bigger roads, but if you wanted to get from city C back to city A, it'd actually be kind of difficult, much mm -hmm. more like imagine if the three of them are in a triangle, it'd be much easier if you just had a road from city C to city A. Hmm. So imagine now that each of those cities are neurons in your brain and each of those neurons represents a memory. So the point being that the more connections there are in different directions from the different ideas to each other, the easier it is to get from any one place to another. So that's kind of a, a simplified way of thinking about it, but the point is that in learning theory, we talk a lot about transfer, which is the ability to take what you're learning from the context in which you learn it into another context. Well, the more tightly bound what you're learning is to the context, um, namely by only studying in one way over and over and over and over again, mm -hmm. the harder it is to transfer outside because those, there's not a rich assortment of different connections. So you're, you're kind of uh, tied to that scenario in which you learned it. You can only apply the formula in a very, if we're talking about math, rote sort of plug and play approach mm -hmm. as opposed to learning the underlying theory and understanding the basis of the formula in which case you can use it in in any which way you can um, you can re derive it on the fly you can apply it to scenarios that you wouldn't have considered before because you understand it on a much deeper and more well-connected way path to mastery seems like such a long arduous lifetime kind of achievement award road <laughs> yeah. i mean um that's why i when i found your book i 
it seemed like such a relief kind of reading it as opposed to, you know, some of the other books that I, that I've read, but is there, is there any specific one thing that you would kind of relay to the people listening or some of your readers, something that you use that has benefited you? Well, thank you very much for that. I, I appreciate you saying that. It's that the one takeaway for the book for me is that there's wisdom in that statement that the, you know, the journey is more important than the destination. But the way you approach that is going to be different for every person. And what that means is that each of our roads throughout life are going to vary wildly and you can't use somebody else's path as your, um, as your signposts. Like you can't compare yourself to another person and say, that is what's good. And that is what's bad. The only person you can compare yourself to is yourself. And it is, if you're doing that, not in a self-critical, not in a, you know, I need to push myself harder, faster, stronger sort of way, but just in a, you know, Am I being honest? Am I being true to my own experience? Am I doing the things that make the world what I want it to be? And as long as as long as you're being honest to that, then who is anybody else to say whether your life is good or bad? Yeah, yeah, it's so important to kind of self-actualize all of this. And you've you've online you have a skill cookbook. Can mm-hmm. you can you tell us about that and kind of how you how you curated the idea for that? Sure. So Skill Cookbook started as just a blog about different learning theory. So as I mentioned, I studied video games and also a little bit of neuroscience in college. And I started by wanting to create educational video games. And when I started getting deeper and deeper into that research, I found that I started exploring different products that were out there. Um, different learning software, different um, approaches that other companies had taken. And I I wasn't ready to go start my own company that was going to, you know, create a learning game just yet. But I was really interested in sharing what I found with other people, good strategies for learning new things. So it touches on everything from the science of learning to product reviews of different software games and apps that might help people learn anything from the guitar to the periodic table, really anything that you might want to memorize or internalize. Hmm. Okay. I mean, just to touch back on the book here, I mean, how important do you think failure is to the process of learning and growing? Failure is one of those words that all of a sudden in Silicon Valley, at least, or, you know, in the, in the different uh, lexicon here, it's, it's getting a lot of press and people talk about, you know, the need to fail and um, failing fast and the lean startup and all different ideas like that. These are all certainly very important, but I think something kind of gets lost in the message, which is that in failure, it's not about failing for the sake of failure. It's about finding the boundaries. It's about conducting experiments and learning, you know, where, um, where the point of breakage is or what you can or cannot do. And to that end, you know, anything that you want to get better at needs to be defined by what you cannot yet do. So if you if you push yourself to that point and you fail, then you learn what you need to improve at. But if you just, you know, if you just fail and say, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy because I failed, that's that's not a productive experience. 
it has to be in service of understanding where you're trying to go. Wow. It's, I mean, it's really important. And I really do recommend this book, The Joy of Craft. Zane, I really appreciate your time. And where can people find your work? Thank you very much. Uh, the Joy of Craft is at thejoyofcraft.com. And of course, the blog is Skill Cookbook. And all of my stuff is over at inzania.com, I-N-Z-A-N-I-A.com. Awesome. I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.